Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. September 2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of the state of Florida's acquisition of the land we call the Dade Battlefield. Their acquisition created the historic state park in Bushnell. The state and park officials commemorate this anniversary this year in an all-day event in conjunction with Florida Heritage Day on Saturday, November 13, 2021. This is a story of local Floridians with a sense of history and of honor who campaigned to formalize the battlefield forevermore as hallowed ground. Without their efforts, especially the park's greatest advocate, Judge Brian Kuntz, today the land might be in private hands, long since developed and with no traces remaining of the seminal fight that began the Second Seminole War. Stephen Rink, president of the Seminole Wars Foundation and a longtime president of the Dade Battlefield Society, joins us to tell this fascinating story of purpose, determination, and tenacity to create a haven where the dead can be honored and the living can enjoy their leisure time. Stephen Rink, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, glad to be here. Steve, first things first, what are we commemorating here? Well, simply put, it's the acquisition of the park grounds by the state of Florida on September 29, 1921. What makes this significant? Well, anything's a milestone that's 100 years old. It's a centennial. Well, another thing that's interesting, uh, coincidence, it's also the 200th anniversary this year of the acquisition of Florida from Spain. I don't like round numbers, I think. I don't like the fact when we can celebrate events when they come into play with that kind of a roundness. What made this a milestone so memorable? Well, 100 years ago, was that was really the, not the terminus, but it was a nice break from all of the struggle that people had gone through for the previous 40 years plus of trying to get either the state of Florida or the federal government to give formal recognition to the site where Major Dade and his men met their demise in 1835. It's a very important battle, as probably most of the listeners know, because it was the beginning of the Second Seminole War, the longest Indian war in American history, and the longest war of any kind up until the middle of Vietnam. So uh, they thought that would be very significant in order to have that set aside as a place that would be permanently preserved from development. Steve, what did it take to get to this point? It's better to actually start out, well, this is State of the Park prior to 1908, because in 1908, there was a gentleman that came in, J.C.B. Kuntz, who was a local attorney and judge and former legislator in Tallahassee, who, for some reason, it's still not well known, took it upon himself to begin to get people's attention to this area where Dade's battle occurred many years before and to have people stand up and take notice that this is an important, significant site. In fact, he began years before that in the legislature. He began back in the 1890s during his first term when he was under 30 years old. Came in to issue the first bill that asked for recognition by the purchase of Florida of that property. That bill failed along with all the others that he put in along the line until the very last one. So he took it upon himself to go out to the area, kind of scope it out, and to look for areas that still had evidence of the battle. 
he noticed that there was an area that was called the breastworks that had been eaten away, the, a three-log barricade that was hastily thrown up toward the end of the battle. And he saw that there was evidence of those logs uh, crumbling. The shape was still there. Inside the breastworks were the bodies of the enlisted men that were buried in 1836, February. They were disinterred later in St. Augustine, but he could see physical evidence on the grounds that were being overgrown. And he went and something about that. So he began himself single-handedly at first, and then he had his young son, Oliver, joining just to really weed and clear out certain areas that were near the, the actual battle site ending at the breastworks and, and nearby. And so he took it upon himself to really make it an area where people would, would like to come in and, and make observations and even have a picnic lunch, maybe. But that began in 1908. Before that time, the area that was once a pine barren had developed oak trees. There weren't many oaks at all on the property out there during the battle time. Oaks were either planted as saplings or there was uh, stray acorns that were dropped by people. Who knows how they started? But oaks began to take over the presence of the property in, in lieu of the pine. It began to take what Coombs thought was a more park-like atmosphere for people to come in and recreate, have a picnic lunch maybe, uh, maybe play a ball game of some sort, or just have a day off that uh, they can come in and just enjoy nature. Plus, be in the area where there was a great historical event that occurred, and it gave him the opportunity to talk about that as well. What was Judge Kuntz's background, and what made him want to be a champion of the Dade battlefield? Judge Kuntz was born in 1870 in North Carolina, and he was always a very um, precocious child, read at an early age, interested in anything that he would, would, would talk about. Along the way, did a lot of reading, went to a private academy in his area of North Carolina, the area called Lenoir. Not known clearly if he was steered that way by somebody or he just found it himself. I kind of think it was the latter. Talked about this obscure engagement of the military against Seminole Indians in Florida 50 years before the time. And he began to uh, think about, well, what was that about? And gee, Florida's not that far away from North Carolina. And, uh, and when I get a train that goes down that way, I might hop on down myself. What well, ended up that he and his father moved to the area, which is now made up of Sumter and Lake County and Marion County in that area of West Central Florida in the late 1880s. And they decided to stay. He met people in the area, met a lawyer, began to take lessons from him at his office. And uh, I studied for the law and uh, passed the bar. And all this time, he was making a name for himself because he was quite bright. He was quite civic-minded, and he would ask local people about what their experiences had been at the park. And there weren't that many that they could talk of, but they did know it was there. They knew the story. And uh, he just uh, became more prominent in local politics. He ran for the legislature and won before the age of 30. And he just developed this interest that we know was just self-taught. And he felt as if this was such a significant area that he wanted uh, the whole world to be aware of it. He was, he was actually planning, uh, his ultimate goal was to have it designated as a national park. And that's what he kept on working on until many years later, after it was purchased by Florida, he was still trying to get national attention for it up to his dying day in 1848. What do we know about what the park land was like prior to Judge Coons's efforts? Well, it's sketchy. Not many people lived in the area to begin with. The portion of the actual battlefield itself, in my research, I could find no evidence of anybody actually living on there. Passing through, maybe. Walking through, riding through, possibly. But actually living there. What part did the Armed Occupation Act play? The Armed Occupation Act of 1842, which occurred right at the end of the Second Seminole War, did encourage people to come in to central and, and south central Florida. And that was the act that promised that if you were a citizen, a male citizen, 
And you can come in and, and you could acquire 160 acres if you agreed to live on it for five years, at least if you agreed to raise some type of cultivation for five years. And if you were armed with something that actually shot a projectile, you could stay there because it was your responsibility to take care of your own land and defend it against the Seminoles who might be still in the area. It was really vacant area to be. There was a person living in what is now Sumter County. They had a settlement, and even as far back as 1839, there was evidence of people living here. But it really didn't come in. People weren't really encouraged to come in until that act was passed. It only lasted for nine months. But after that nine months, there were additional actions that the Congress had taken previous to that time would encourage people to come in to federal lands in certain areas, including Florida Territory. And they would sell property to them for $1.25 an acre. That brought in some more people. Plus, veterans of the Seminole Wars were allowed, and other veterans of other wars too, if they wanted to, they could receive a grant from the federal government to come in and acquire property. I'm not sure how many acres it would have been, but they could also come in for nothing and just homestead. So that began to really bring people in. Into the 1850s, when there was talk about a railroad possibly that hadn't been there yet, but... uh, People began to come in, and mostly from Georgia and the Carolinas. They would raise crops. They brought cattle in with them. The area transformed itself very, very slowly. Of all the present counties in Florida, there are very few of them that we have today with, with the same ones, same names, or same, same boundaries as they, as they were in the 1840s and 50s. A very few of those counties that we now have, in fact, all of them surrounding Sumter County had a greater population growth than did Sumter County. Sumter County was the backwoods and backyard and overlooked for a long time. But there was steady growth that was very, very slow until after the Civil War. Steve, take us back a little bit first. Besides the battle itself, the first visitors were those of the U.S. Army. Well, Gaines came up from Fort Brooke. Some books say he had about 1,000 men with him or more. The actual number was 980 came with him from Fort Brooke, and it was less than two months after the battle. And what they found was a terribly grisly scene of the bodies and of debris scattered all over. Of course, they've been out there for a while, and so nature and its, and its denizens had their way with the remains of the, those who died. But surprisingly, they found out that not all, in fact, very few of the soldiers who were there had anything of value taken from them. The officers were identified by their uniforms, which they still had, by their ranks. They were identified by personal items that they were known to wear. And so they were separated from the others, and they were buried with honors outside of the breastworks that had been thrown up at the end of the battle. There were trenches that were built inside of the breastworks, and the remains of the enlisted men and the non-commissioned officers were placed in those trenches and covered up again. And there was, under all this, under great military honor. And in fact, Gaines brought a band with him, and uh, the band ended up marching around the breastworks playing a funeral dirge. It was a very somber occasion. After the battle, the Seminoles had taken the six-pound cannon that was there on the site and placed it in a pond nearby. Gaines and his men extracted it from the pond, plugged it so it could no longer be used as an instrument of warfare, and placed it upright over the graves of the officers. Did soldiers come to visit this site in the months and years afterwards? They were still on the 14 military trail, so there was still movement. I mean, people were all over that property. They went through it continually for years because that was the main, in fact, the only real decent route between Tampa Bay and Ocala, Fort King, and beyond. So people were aware. When they came, they were very much aware that was the site of Dade's battle. How is it that the Dade battlefield is not the final resting place for those who fell in the battle? 
Well, the battlefield, of course, the bodies had been there for almost seven years. There was the general movement for some time that the Army didn't feel as if they were making any real progress anymore. Some Seminoles had been sent out to the Oklahoma Indian Territory. Others repaired back to the bombs of the Everglades and were really hard to find. And that a lot of money was spent, a lot of money, by the federal government. And it was decided that, uh, you know, we need to just draw this thing to a close. And so before that time, it was decided that, well, we need to take the remains of those who day battlefield and other areas died in Florida and put them all in proper permanent cemetery. And the only one that was available uh, at the time was a military cemetery in San Augustine. There was an effort to have every military person, whether an officer or a listed man, contribute one day's pay. Each soldier and officer was asked to make a contribution of one day of pay in order to pay for the expense of, of returning to Dade's battle and to disinter the remains and to transport them to St. Augustine, where they were reinterred on the 15th of August of 1842. There was nothing special done for it, and no kind of markers or plaques of that kind at all. As people moved into the area, and again, remember that there weren't a whole lot of people living anywhere near Dade's battlefield until just before the Civil War. People came in and they learned the story. They would come out and they would look at the property. They understood that there was a great battle that occurred there and it was a great loss of life. And so that was always treated with respect. But they also thought that it was a nice area just to be. There were people who would come there for recreation, just for walks in the woods and for picnics and so forth during that time. It became more numerous in terms of people coming out to the area after the railroad came. When the railroad came in the 1880s, the more people came in, uh, developed homes and uh, settled, and there were travelers that came in, even tourists were coming in because the area of the newly named Sumter County was famed for its ample game and for the beauty of the Bethacoochee River and other areas. And so they came in just as a way to escape the northern climes for a while. By the time that Kuntz came as a young adult into the area, people were aware of the property and they knew that there was a battle there. But he wanted to, to make it so that it was more inviting that it was more park-like of an environment and an atmosphere for them to come in so that more people could come, enjoy the grounds for their own purposes, but yet also learn more about the story of what happened there. What happened to change the area and to focus more on stewardship a half century later? Well, what happened was, was that um, beginning in the uh, mid-1880s, people who had moved into the area for farming, for cattle raising, orange growth growing, and had businesses started up. In fact, the first person that came in, really of a decent size of family, started up a grist mill, which also doubled as a sawmill in the area. So people came in. How they acquired property was to apply for federal grants. Now, these grants weren't free. They did have to pay for them, but they were really cheap. The first private party who bought the area that is Dave Battlefield, he bought a land grant. He paid $295 for a grant for the property. After he applied for the grant and he gave the money in, the grant had not yet occurred, but yet this person actually sold it to somebody else, sold the property to somebody else before the grant actually was signed by President Cleveland. So people were moving fast. They came in, they saw land was available, and they were trying to grab it as fast as they could. But initially, the first private person to actually acquire Dade Battlefield was a gentleman named James W. Bostick. And he got it from a land grant. He had to go to Gainesville to the grant office, $295, cash in the barrelhead, applying for a federal land grant that would later be signed and approved by President Cleveland. Considering other areas of Florida in the 50 years after the Dade Battle, the Bushnell area, where the Dade battle was held, still seemed to be sparsely populated. What effect did that have? It's all because about population. 
It was a sparsely populated area. And there were other areas in the surrounding counties that got a lot more attention. Ocala grew 10 times more over the 1850s and 60s than did the area around what is now Sumter County. There was a railroad that came in, passed by, you know, stopped in Sumter County, but then continued on into Tampa Bay, into Tampa and into St. Petersburg eventually. People were drawn there because there were hotels that were being built for them, and it was being advertised as an area to come for your health. Until there were settlers who came, people who came through the county, they saw it as a waste stop, that thing. Judge Coons, being a politician, after he went to the legislature for one term in the 1890s, he made contacts, and he was a wonderful fellow to develop those contacts and to kind of milk them along the way. He would help um, a local congressman campaign within the area in which he was living. Even drove him around in 1914 in his own car and made friends there. Of course, that local congressman didn't hurt because as a child, he actually played on the day Bellatel property in the 1890s. Well, he was a very wily type person, very nice though, very friendly to people, very fair. Everybody admired him. Judge Kuntz was a county judge. He, he was the owner and editor of the Sumter County Times, which then was based in Sumterville, about six miles from present-day Bushnell. <clears throat> he was a private attorney as well, all, all those two times. He eventually was appointed to the circuit court. So he, he got around, and he made a lot of contacts, and these contacts made other contacts, and there were bills one after another from congressmen in Hillsborough County, congressmen in Polk County, kept on putting bills in to the federal Congress. Legislators did so to the Florida legislature. Year after year, there was a number of bills that came in that kept on plugging away at this great unused site or unknown site for a lot of people, Dade Battlefield, this great battle that happened here needs to be preserved. And there was a whole legion of people who came in to act on that in that behalf. There were civic clubs who got on the ball. There were the women's auxiliary of these civic clubs who wrote letters to congressmen. Even when I went so far as to investigate why there was a monument to Major Dade at West Point. And what did the then com and what did the commandant of West Point say? The then commandant of West Point was a gentleman named Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur. He even said that it would be a good idea. He said that the old soldiers who come to the point talk about Dade's battle around the campfire at night. It's something that we haven't forgotten about. And so there was a lot of pressure from a whole legion of people, as I say, including notable ones like, like the general and others. And so finally, there was enough agreement. And it was also post-war. World War One was sapping the Treasury. And so after the war was over and won, and there was greater economic times were coming in the 20s, it was decided that, okay, now is a time where we can actually seriously consider doing this and purchasing the property. We being the, uh, at that time, it was a, uh, still a big uh, Florida legislature. By that time, the property had passed through several hands. By 1915, it was owned by a gentleman named Ralph Collins, who was quite an entrepreneur himself, ended up being the mayor of Bushnell. So when he and his wife, Florence, were the ones who actually sold the property to the state of Florida in September of 1921. The property sold 80 acres for $2,000, quite a bargain by our standards today. The owners didn't farm on it. What did they use the land for? Uh, Mr. Collins and his wife Florence bought the property. They had sold mineral leases on it. And the leases basically were for companies who were into the production of naval stores, which meant getting pine sap from the trees. So the property was used for that purpose. There was no agriculture of any other kind that I've learned about, but there were pine trees that were being used. A great amount of pine tar was removed between 1915 and 1921 from the property by people who had leases on it. And frankly, others who just came in themselves and did some on their own. 80 acres was the first purchase, and that included the area of the breastwork and the last moments of the battle. 
It also included just the edge of the area called Lederclaw Cannon Pond, where the cannon was placed by the Indians removed later by General Gaines's troops. And it stayed that way. It was 80 acres from 1921 until about 20. 20, I believe, was the year when a neighboring property owner who happened to own the entire area of the pond, the Cannon Pond, sold 40 acres again to the state of Florida. So now today, the Day Belleville Historic State Park consists of 120 acres, which includes the entire battle area plus the pond. And uh, that, that's how it is today. Steve, what's the significance of the acquisition of this additional 40 acres to the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park? Well, Part of the battle took place there, we think. There was a retreat toward the pond. The Indians did not come from that direction. But it's believed by many people that the cannon that had been removed from the field and placed in the pond somehow are still there. Because when when troops came back to disinter the bodies in 1842 and and remove them to some other thing for proper burial, the cannon that had been placed over the graves by Gaines' men was gone. And there are many people who believe that it was placed into the pond again. Seems like a simple way to prove or disprove this. Just go into the pond and look for the cannon. The owners did not allow it to happen. The state of Florida today is not too keen about doing an exploration of the area. I cannot give you a reason why that's so. I cannot provide a reason to explain why they're reluctant to do that. The park acquired these additional 40 acres, but it wasn't a very highly publicized effort. No, there was... um, a very quiet campaign of lobbyists who had lobbied the legislature, and really not the legislature so much as it was lobbied the proper authorities and departments in Tallahassee who would be the ones who would be acquiring land. Uh, lobbyists, private people, uh, and others uh, who were in public positions lobbied in Tallahassee for at least a lustrum, I think, at least five years or more to purchase part, if not all, of the property next door to the east of the park. I'm not privy to tell you the actual point at which it was determined that that would be done. It was very delicate political moves, as a matter of fact. There were people who came through over the years and some were in favor of expanding the park system to allow cattle grazing and golfing and so forth. And Others had said that it would be awful to do that, disregard the reason why they're being preserved to begin with. And so there were political moves back and forth in order to determine what was going to be happening. And they're just, I mean, we were all surprised when it occurred. I personally had spoken with the owner of the property next door several years previous to that. He came to seek me out. I was president at the time of the Dade Battlefield Society, a citizen support organization for Dade Battlefield Park. He had asked me if I could use whatever influence I had, which wasn't much, to see if, if I could help the state to understand that uh, he was interested in selling the property. But Judge Coons was thrilled, of course, that it became a state park. But he really had a larger ambition for the park. What was that? But a little bit of an undercurrent to that was, even though he was quite pleased, obviously, he still was determined that the park should be a national park. So he always had that in his mind, always tried to move in that direction. They picked an auspicious day to formally open the park a few months later. What date was that? following the purchase, July 4th, 1922, as many as 5,000 people who descended on the park. And there was all the things you could imagine with it, but there were picnics, competing bands that were playing, marching bands from various areas. There was a baseball game that was produced. There was a, there was a baseball field that was mowed and, and developed. There was a contest to name Miss Dade Memorial Park. The name there was Dade Memorial Park. And there was a contest to determine the a queen of the park. It was a glorious event that brought in thousands of people, not just from the, the immediate area, but all over Florida, Central Florida, at least in, in West Florida. Advertised in papers in Tampa, Ocala, Jacksonville, and they came in and had a great time. Tell us about the commission that the state of Florida set up. 
there was a commission that had been appointed by the state of Florida, a, a three-member commission, Judge Kings for secretary. Another gentleman named Fred Coverley was the president, and there was Alma Rowland, who was the wife of a prominent lawyer in Bushnell, was the treasurer. And they took charge of getting the bark for the people coming in, providing barbecue, food, it was lovely. It started the tradition of people coming in every July 4th, and that still exists today. People coming in for picnics and for just a general good time, playing games and what have you. Besides the land, the state had to pay to actually establish the park for recreational activities. How much control did the state of Florida exercise in this regard? The state legislature purchased the park, as I said, for $2,000. I allocated $3,000 also for its development, and then walked away and uh, left it in the hands of the local people. So for the following 30 years plus, it was essentially it was managed and supervised and developed by the people of Bushnell and Sumter County. In 1922, by that time, there had already been structures that were put up. They just came in and, and Judge Coon supervised all these structures. The bandstand was built. There was a monument built out in front of a lodge. Tied all the fun with the picnics and games and, and, and uh, the baseball and the bands, they had come and they did, and had discovered that there were already several stone structures that had been built. Amazing. There was an archway gate coming into the property, still dirt road at that time, that was built by the people of Central County. There was a bandstand that was built. In fact, that's where the bands played who came in on that day. And that's still standing, 100 years. There was something else that they added somewhat an embarrassment later on, had to do with a private wearing a kepi cap. Tell us about it, Steve. Also, there was a monument at least 12 feet, up to 16 feet high in, in front of a lodge that had been constructed. The lodge was constructed partially of native stone and of wood. In front of that was a monument with a plaque on it, a plaque that was inlaid in the monument with the names of all the men of Dave's command. And on top of the monument, there was a, a statue, a bronze statue, of a soldier, which people nicknamed Major Dade when they saw it. Most people didn't realize it, but the soldier was very well done. It was a man who was a, probably a non-commissioned or also a, a private, possibly, a soldier standing in a greatcoat, had a mustache, and had, was holding on his weapon, a rifle. But on his hat was a kepi, which was a Civil War hat. And uh, not a whole lot of folks realized that at the time, in the euphoria of all this occurring, and finally, after all these years, we have a park that's being recognized as that grand. Not a whole lot was said about that. Not even Judge Kuntz himself realized that the hat was incorrect. Fast forward many years in the future, by the 1950s, the state of Florida decided that it would, it would come in and, and officially take possession, and already had possession, but, but officially have a presence at the park and take it over, and they would remake it into an official-looking state park. It was a nice thing, but that's when trouble started with the local people. What trouble? Over those previous 30 years plus, the park, whereas it had monuments that would honor those who had fallen there in the past, the park had been transformed into a recreational facility, too, for the county and for the city of Bushnell. And there were baseball fields that were having place there and what have you. A state came in and decided that they want to transform this again back to the way it looked at the beginning of the time when it had become famous. So in other words, they wanted to transform the 1957 park into the looks of 1835. And that's when a lot of trouble began. A lot of contention between the townspeople, the county residents, and the state of Florida as to what to do with that park. Seethed for a while for the next 20 years. And by the mid-70s, there was such a hue and cry that there had been meetings between the, the state officials and with the people in, inside the town of Bushnell and the city fathers and so forth came to a peaceable agreement about the use of the park. It would be maintained 
as much as possible to look the way it did at the time, but, but still have some recreational areas there for the people. Steve, good path you've taken us down, but what about the kepi? In terms of the statue, that statue had been removed from the pedestal in the 19, early 1960s. So the pedestal was set in down. And the statue was put at the front of the of the new visitor center and office building and museum. Still, he still had that kepi on. So eventually, by the late 1970s, that statue was removed altogether from ease of sight of a casual visitor and placed into a pole barn behind the park by the areas where you know, volunteers come in to stay for a while. Around this time, Frank Laumer comes into the picture. Well, Frank Lomer came by in 1963 and decided that he wanted to have more information about the park than what was provided to him. So he made it his avocation for the rest of his life that he wanted to study about Dade, about Dade's battle, and about the larger Seminole War. And that became a passion for him. And so by 1980, he had written the book already, entitled Massacre, which was an award-winning book. And by 1980, he had convinced the park and the people in the area that there should be some type of a uh, larger event that would commemorate this battle and to remember what happened there. He had done the research and found out about the uniforms at the time and much of other information. And he was the one who was more responsible than anybody to convince the park management to allow for an event in 1980, which was an invitational. And again, there were several thousand people who came in, and what they saw there was Frank representing himself as the spirit of Ransom Clark, who was one of the few survivors, who described in vivid detail and in a very uh, entertaining way what happened, what the day battle was about, what happened blow by blow. There were also some park rangers from Hillsborough River State Park, which had just had, just had completed building uh, a replica of Fort Foster, a Civil War era fort. And they came up in uniform and they were there displaying themselves and their accoutrements and um, using their muskets to fire off sample shots for the public. So I could hear what, that, what it was like at the time and see the smoke come out. And so when uh, that started, 1980, that was just a conversation that he had with the public. But he did that for the next four years, too. But by 1985, there was an actual reenactment started for the first time, where there were reenactors coming in, both both soldier and Seminole, who did a reenactment as close as they could to the actual anniversary date. It's December 28 every year. And that started in 1985, and it's continuing, except for during a closure one year for the pandemic, that it's continuing up into the present. As for regular reenactments, when did that start? That started, I'm not sure the exact year, but I know that it was by the mid-1990s that was going on. And that started under the auspices of a sister group called the Seminole Wars Foundation. It's a group that publishes and uh, preserves sites and to educate the public uh, about what happened during those times. They sponsored, so every year in, in, until the, up to the present, and more, we hope. Besides a living history reenactment event, there's also a ceremony to commemorate the battle itself. And that's not on the reenactment weekend. There is a, it's called a wreath ceremony, which occurs on the 28th of December every year in front of the breastworks, which has now been reconstructed with real logs to commemorate what happened. And the brief story of the battle is told again. But more, it's about a story about the people, uh, about the people uh, then and the people now, and about how we still recognize and give honors to those who gave their lives on both sides, both both white, red, and black at the time. How important is it to commemorate this way? Oh, it's very important. It, it adds a great visual 
stimulus. I mean, you can sit there and listen all day long to the story, but if you don't have anything to really gauge yourself on, most people are visual learners. If you don't have anything to actually see, uh, you, you lose part of it, and that's very dramatic. It adds a lot of hoopla, I would think. That might be the wrong word, maybe a lot of drama to the ceremonies. That's very important. And it, it actually emulates what really occurred there when General Gaines was giving honors. Because we have a reenactor in a military uniform posed at all four corners of where the breastworks would have been, in fact, are now. And that's what they did at the time, too. They had boasted sentries at both positions where when the band marched around the breastworks and played the funeral dirge. And so we, it's kind of like an emulation of that period. And there was a wreath that is placed every year. There was a wreath that is placed on a stand in front of the breastworks to honor those. There is a Dade Battlefield Society. What does it do? Well, the present iteration of the Dade Battlefield Society began in 1987, and its purpose is as a citizen support organization for the Dade Battlefield, the Florida State Park, and is to support all the park activities, both events and otherwise. It spends more time than that during the year in planning and making preparations for the annual reenactment of Dade's Battle. And to that, they've added another event, which commemorates the fact that during World War II, there was an active duty army base stationed on the property for about a year. So there's two major events that Dave Battlefield Society sponsors uh, during the year, the reenactment in January now, every year the first weekend in January, and also the World War II that we do in March to commemorate two events that actually happened here at the park. In addition to that, there are other events during the year that the society sponsors and tries to raise money to do that. There are regular groups that has dues, and they have meetings, and they have officers, and so it's a very serious undertaking to really benefit the park and to the people around here. How is the park's relationship with the Dade Battlefield Society as a civic organization? Well, it's a working relationship. Every state park values highly the benefit that volunteers give to it. In fact, I think there won't be any state park manager, I don't believe, in any of the 150-plus state parks around the state of Florida who will not say, and if they did not have a legion of volunteers dedicated to help, that the park could not function, whatever the park is, could not function in the way that it does now. So they provide voluntary assistance. They develop a, a kinship among each other and among other CSOs in the area and beyond. And there's a relationship that is a statewide relationship. There is a statewide Friends of Philosophy Cross organization which coordinates benefits for the CSOs, insurance benefits and other things as well. So without volunteers, most of our parks could not, maybe they could exist, but they could not provide the level of services that they now do. So 100th anniversary, when's the celebration? 100th anniversary is being linked in to another event, which is a Florida History Day, which is be happening in November of this year, 2021. Focus will be on the booth that I am manning, which have displays, photographs, other displays about how the 1920s were, 1921 particularly. I'll be there to tell the story that I've told today about how the park was acquired and the great work that JCP Kuntz did to lead the way. I'll do it with photographs. I'll do it with uh, my... Uh, with some props that I have put in, the 1920s artifacts. I think it would be a nice show. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of new banners and a lot of new displays that we have to put up to uh, demonstrate and to, and to give visuals to the people who come to, to watch and to see and to interact with us at the event. For those who want to know the precise date, it's Saturday, November 13th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. The Florida Heritage Day and Dade Centennial Celebration at the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park. Dade Park is not only historic, it's also award-winning. 
Tell us more. Well, Patrick, I can tell you that the Dave Bellatota Story State Park is one of the 160-plus in the state. We're all very proud of the fact that for four times we have been designated by a national group as winning the Gold Star Award for state parks. And that's something that all of us are proud of in every, every state park in Florida. Dade is designated a historic state park. How important is that distinction to have that listed? Uh, state parks can be divided as recreational and as historic. The historic state parks, from my point of view, are very important so that the public does not lose sight of what came before, so they can be aware of our history, the important parts that put us where we are today, without sacrificing enjoyment and pleasure and recreation. So they're linked side by side. The fact that we have that it's been 100 years just lends a nice round number to the point that we can use it to get more public attention. Using the word centennial draws the attention in that something special that's happened. And there's been a lot that has occurred over the last 100 years and we're looking forward to be able to use all the resources that we now have that we didn't have then to make it even better future 100 years to come. For those who want to know more, you can email Kristen N. Wood. So it's K-R-I-S-T-I-N dot n dot wood at floridadep.gov. Kristen N. Wood at floridadep.gov for more information. Steve Rink, thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Well, Patrick, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I look forward to hearing more and more of your podcasts in days and months to come. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.